What an eccentric way for the son of David to return to the throne of David. That through defeat would come victory. That through humility would come power. That through death would come life. And yet, that is the essence of the gospel. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this morning I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We've made our way to Mark chapter 11. And the concluding portion of Mark's Gospel gives to us the last week of our Lord's life. So for the next several, several months, we will be studying the last week of the Lord Jesus Christ's life upon this earth as we work through Mark's gospel. And this morning we come to what is known as the triumphal entry. I've entitled the message this morning simply as the king's arrival, the king's arrival. And I want you, in light of the fact that we are speaking about the king of kings, to stand to your feet in respect to the King of Kings as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now hear God's word. Mark writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, that is Jesus, the disciples, and this caravan of pilgrims, they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated and let us ask him for his help as we look at this text together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful for the unfolding of the scriptures and detailing to us the life of our Lord, the conclusion of his earthly life. We pray that you might help us this day to understand the significance of his kingship, to understand the significance of us being yielded to his kingship. Father, that we might see him for all he is and all of his glory, that we might worship him and praise him. Help us as we study your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In the 11th century, a king by the name of King Henry III of Bavaria grew sick and tired of court life. He really grew sick of being a king with all of the decisions that needed to be made, all of the pressures in life. So he decided that he was going to leave the monarchy for a monastery. And upon coming to that monastery, uh, Prior Richard was the name of the one in charge of it, the king uh, stated his desire. He said that he wanted to leave the throne and he wanted to serve as a monk for the rest of his days. To which Prior Richard said to him, Do you understand that the pledge of such a life as a monk is one of obedience? And do you understand that that will be extremely hard for you to fulfill in light of the fact that you've lived your whole life as a king, giving orders? To which King Henry responded, I understand that the rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. To which the prior responded, Then I command you to go back to the throne. Those are my first orders for you. Go back to the throne and serve faithfully in the place of a king as God has originally appointed you. King Henry did that. And when he died, a statement was written. This is the statement. It said, the king learned to rule by being obedient. Hebrews 5.8 says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus went low before he went high. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth obediently. Jesus observed God's law perfectly obediently. Jesus walked according to the Father's will obediently. Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners obediently. And he therefore was raised triumphantly and he ascended victoriously. The rest of Mark's gospel, as I said, traces our Lord's lowly and obedient steps to the cross, verse, or chapters 11 through 15, then culminating in his resurrection in chapter 16. It can therefore be said of Jesus the King that he learned to rule by being obedient, by going low. And such is on full display here in the triumphal entry, something that is certainly marked by glory, something that is certainly marked by royalty, but also a scene that is marked by lowliness, humility, and that of a servant. Following the traditional timeline of the last week of our Lord's life, the Friday before he was crucified, he reached Bethany, which was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. This was probably the date of March 21st. The next day, as we pull to pieces the chronology of the last week of our Lord's life, sees Jesus celebrating the Sabbath with some friends. And on that occasion, he went to Simon the leper's home and he healed him. He also had um, and was anointed by Mary at her home in Bethany. The next day was Sunday. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the account that we're going to look at here this morning, it was then on Monday, April 3rd, that he went back to Jerusalem. He cursed the fig tree, he cleansed the temple, and he headed back to Bethany for the night. Coming back to Jerusalem on Tuesday, April the 4th, He taught the disciples lessons about the withered fig tree. He had a confrontation with the religious leaders. He observed the widow give her money into the temple treasury. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. 
and the collusion to kill Jesus began. It was on Thursday, the week our Lord was crucified, that he had the Last Supper with the disciples. Then on Friday around midnight, he heads out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweats drops of blood early in the hours of Friday morning, his trial before Pilate, where he is then sentenced. He is scourged, beaten, mocked by the soldiers, hangs on a cross from noon to three in the darkness of that hour, cries out with a loud voice, and the date was April 7th. Saturday, he remained in the tomb, and Sunday, April 9th, he was raised from the dead. This is the last week of our Lord's life. He has come a long way for the three plus years of his ministry, really crisscrossing through all sorts of regions from Galilee to Samaria to Perea. And now it will all end in the province of Judea, where the capital of Jerusalem is located. The past nine months of our life, as you have been with us, has witnessed Jesus traversing some 40 villages and hamlets and cities healing people, preaching the good news of the kingdom, his popularity being at really an all-time high at this point, so that by the time that he goes to enter Jerusalem with the pilgrim caravan, some scholars estimate that there were as many as 100,000 people following Jesus into Jerusalem. He had just healed blind Bartimaeus, as we saw last week, who pronounced Jesus to be the son of David. We saw from Luke's account in Luke 18.43 that people were so mesmerized by that healing as well as the conversion of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, that they went along the way to Jerusalem praising God and glorifying God, traveling in celebration to celebrate the Passover, singing their praises to God. Not only that, but at some point when Jesus was in Bethany, the apex of all of his miracles occurred when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And his news about that capstone miracle of his entire ministry spread. Even more people came from the surrounding towns and villages to see this Jesus, this prophet. He had earlier, if you remember, after the feeding of the 5,000 plus, been so consumed by the crowds that the Bible says in John chapter 6, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Things had sort of subsided, but as Jesus returned to civilization in Perea and he began to bless the children and heal the adults and see these conversions and raise Lazarus from the dead, his height of popularity was at an all-time high. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem with this pilgrim caravan, everything that was in the news had to do with what Jesus was going to do when he got there. Because most of these people wanted to take him by force to make him king. Most of these people thought that perhaps this would be their deliverance from Roman bondage. And you can understand that the side effect of that is that all of the the leaders, the politicians of Rome, the religious leaders of Israel would have understood that this could be absolutely devastating for the peace that they had with Rome. This could cause the religious leaders to lose their positions, to lose their clout. This could cause persecution, the destruction of Jerusalem itself. And so everyone is asking what is going to happen. But they are excited, hesitantly so, but nevertheless excited. With two million Jews converging to Jerusalem, traveling from their hamlets and villages, the excitement was high. That's where we're at as we enter Mark chapter 
11, what has been traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday, what has been traditionally said as being the triumphal entry of our Lord is a triumphant scene, no doubt, but also a tragic scene. Triumphant because we see the sovereignty of our Lord desiring to to fulfill to the last detail and able to fulfill to the last detail all the prophecies about him entering Jerusalem to be the sacrifice for sinners. And yet a tragedy, um, on the other hand, because most of the people simply saw him as some sort of physical deliverer. They did not have an eye to his supernatural ability to actually not just heal people, but to free them and cleanse them from their sins to give them eternal life. That was missed by the vast majority of people. And so as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, the last week of his earthly life, this event, the triumphal entry, the king's arrival, sets up everything that we're going to talk about over the next several months. Everything that is to follow is built upon the significance and the symbolism and the theology and the true meaning behind why Jesus rode on a humble colt, a donkey, into Jerusalem. And so this morning, I want you to note with me in verses 1 through 11, four noteworthy observations about his triumphal entry. And we'll begin in verses 1 through 3 with what I want to call the prophetic guidance. The prophetic guidance. There is a fulfillment of prophecy to the last detail that Jesus is very careful to follow. Notice with me in verse 1, Mark says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples over into the village to fetch a colt. A little bit of geography is important to understand here. Bethpage was located close to the summit of the Mount of Olives, whereas the hamlet of Bethany was located some two miles outside of Jerusalem and to the east. And so this caravan would have reached Bethany before they reached Bethpage. And as I already said in my introduction, Jesus had spent the night in Bethany. He had healed Simon the leper. He had been anointed by Mary. Other things had occurred as well. And now they are leaving Bethany with this caravan, Jesus and the disciples, and they are heading up the Mount of Olives to a a little village called Bethpage. Bethpage was on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, of course, overlooking Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives figuring very prominently in Old Testament prophecy, particularly the prophet Ezekiel. This was a mountain range of some two miles long. At its um, highest summit, its northern summit, it reached some 3,000 feet. Jerusalem itself was also elevated some 2,600 feet above sea level, And so you had two really high sort of mountains in the location of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. You had to go up the Mount of Olives to then go down to Jerusalem. But whichever way you traveled, you were going up to Jerusalem. If you came the way Jesus came, you went up the Mount of Olives and down, but you were still up when you got to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was 2,600 feet above sea level. This is the route that Jesus and this pilgrim caravan came, the famous Mount of Olives, to Bethpage. Leaving Bethany, going up the summit on foot, where verse 1 says Jesus directed two of his disciples, unnamed disciples, 
to go to Beth Page. Notice verse 2. He says, go into the village, that would be Beth Page, in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. Now, there are several things we need to note here. Number one, Jesus gives them the instruction that they will find a colt that is already tied. Matthew 21, 22 in his account says that uh, the mother of the colt would be there as well. Not only that, but in Matthew's account, in Matthew 21, verse 5, it actually quotes Zechariah 9, 9, which is the specific prophecy that Jesus is fully intending to fulfill. This is not coincidence, this is providence. This is on purpose. And Jesus goes on to say, this will be a cult, verse 2, on which no one has ever set. That was also a fulfillment of prophecy. And it was also a fulfillment of prophecy that it would be untied and that they would bring it to Jesus. Jesus is prophetically guiding the disciples, consciously fulfilling Scripture. Now, I've mentioned Zechariah 9.9. Let's turn back there. I read it for our public reading of scripture, but I want you to turn back to Zechariah chapter 9 to refresh your memory. In verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is speaking about the coming king of Zion. And every Israelite understood in their Jewish consciousness The idea that when the Messiah came, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, on a baby donkey. Jesus was prophetically guiding the disciples to this cult that he had knowledge of to be untied and to be brought to him. It is not only a cult that's tied up, but it's one on which no one had ever sat. Did you notice that in verse 2? Because donkeys, like horses, had to be broken in. They had to be broken in so the riders could ride these beasts of burden. And the reason that Jesus wanted a colt never broken in, one never ridden before, is that was that is because in the Jewish culture, no one was allowed to ride the donkey or the horse of a king that was being anointed. It had to be something that had never been used in service, in the field, something that never had a yoke on it. So Jesus sovereignly knew that this sort of request would raise some questions. You walk into a town you're not from to untie a donkey that doesn't belong to you. And so we read in verse 3, Jesus says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. Now some liberal scholars try to downplay Jesus' obvious omniscience. As if Jesus had some sort of prior knowledge of this donkey and he had sort of made a deal with the owners prior. Maybe sneaking away from Bethany in the middle of the night to do this. That is really foolish thinking. Because on the one hand Jesus has already proven many times over that supernaturally information was able to reach his human consciousness. You remember when Jesus knew that there was a fish that had a shekel in it for Peter to pay his tax in Matthew chapter 20 or chapter 17. Or you remember that when Nathanael met Jesus in John chapter 1, a disciple 
Nathaniel asked Jesus, how do you know me? How do you know so much about me? How can you read my heart? Or take, for instance, the three predictions that Jesus has made. The details of his crucifixion, his scourging, his beating. All of his suffering that he knew was going to happen, he predicted he would be crucified on a Roman cross. And you add to that the statement in John chapter 2 around verses 24 and 25 where it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to any man because Jesus knew the hearts of men. Jesus could read people's hearts. Not only that, but it's clear that Jesus hadn't somehow brokered a previous deal with these owners to make the disciples somehow think that Jesus had supernatural knowledge. This was real supernatural knowledge because Luke tells us in his account in Luke 19.33 that it was the owner specifically who asked the disciples, why are you untying the colt? In other words, they had no previous knowledge. Jesus had not brokered some previous deal. Understand this, Jesus is the sinless, holy Son of God. This is His omniscience on full display, and not only His omniscience, but His vast knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, understanding His messianic identity to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Now with that being said, I do think the owners of this cult must have been followers of Jesus. They must have been converts of Jesus. Jesus uh, had missed most of the Passovers during his ministry, but he had been in and around Judea and news had spread and whether or not these owners ever met Jesus, they heard the message of Jesus and how do we know that they were followers of Jesus? Well, because of the answer, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. They knew the character of our Lord, the integrity of our Lord. This wasn't theft. He would send it back. But most importantly, when they heard that their Lord had need of it, they were willing to acquiesce. The Greek word Lord is kurios. It could be translated sir or master. But I believe the context must dictate to us how we define it. And it seems very natural that when they heard it was their Lord, their master, the one they believed in, the one they hoped in, the one they viewed as the son of David, the coming king, the long-awaited Messiah and master, they needed no more explanation and they simply let the cult go to be used by the disciples to give to Jesus. It's very important to understand this is a purposeful, public, dramatic display of prophetic fulfillment. Because everyone would have known that a cult that no one had ridden on being brought to Jesus as he rode down into Jerusalem was a prophecy being fulfilled of the king coming into Mount Zion. The king had the authority to commandeer any animal he wanted to and that's what Jesus was doing. The Old Testament law tells us in Numbers 19 that the priests were to take a heifer that had not worked the field or been pulled by a yoke to be offered as a sacrifice. Deuteronomy 21.3 speaks about other animals uh, that had not worked the field that were to be offered in service to the temple. And now is the Holy Son of God, the pure, sinless Savior, to be offered in, as a sacrifice for sins. Even Jesus' womb that he was born in was an unused womb. Jesus being the firstborn of Mary. Mary herself was unused. She was a virgin. The tomb that Jesus was laid in after he was crucified was an unused tomb because this is the king of kings. 
Therefore, it's only natural that he would ride on a colt that had never been used, a most sacred event, entering Jerusalem as the king of kings. And yet, with the sacred reality of Scripture being fulfilled, there really is no pomp or circumstance, but only humility. Most kings would ride into their cities on a horse. Jesus, the king of kings, rides on a donkey. Such points, number one, to his clear humility. And not only that, but his desire to be associated with David. Because as a matter of fact, you might not know this, but during David's reign, it was the donkey, not the horse, that was the royal animal upon which the king was to ride. And in fact, after David, his son Solomon, we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, also rode on a donkey when he was anointed king. Sometime after Solomon, horses replaced donkeys because donkeys acquired the reputation as being unsuitable for the dignity of a king. But you understand Jesus is a student of history. Jesus is a student of prophecy. And Jesus understands, yes, in my own day, a donkey is a symbol of humility. That fits perfectly for what I'm going to do. But don't miss the fact that I'm riding a donkey that has never been ridden because I'm doing what King David did. I am the coming Messiah. I am associating myself with royalty as the King of Kings. He is purposely associating himself with Davidic royalty and the fulfillment of Scripture. And you have probably watched the coronation of kings or princes or princesses or queens. You've seen... Even our own president at his inauguration and all the events that are planned down to the last detail to convey symbolism, to convey different things about the person going into office. And as every kingly coronation does, Jesus is making a statement by commandeering this cult and riding on it into Jerusalem. He is fulfilling prophecy down to the last detail. The humble, royal king who has come to save his people from their sins, Jesus had full messianic consciousness, a full knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and a full understanding of how all of this would come together down to the last detail. Jesus did not slip up one step of the way to the cross. It was no accident. And I want to comfort you this morning with that. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident, it was ordained by God. And not only that, but everyone for whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, Jesus has shed his blood for. Not one ounce of his blood was shed accidentally. Every single drop of Jesus' blood covers every single sin of all of God's elect people. And you may be here this morning with heavy sin in your heart. You may be here this morning yet confessing sin. You may be here this morning living a secret life. You may be here this morning with a world full of hypocrisy. But know this, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ which can remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. He did not spill his blood in vain, but he died upon a cruel cross in order to fulfill prophecy, to redeem his people, to save you from hell, to save you from God's wrath. None of it was an accident. This is not God the Father abusing His Son. This is the Son being obedient to the Father because there was no other way of salvation. And that's how much God loves sinners. That's how much God loves His own people. He would not go to the left or to the right 
from the direct path to Calvary that God had set him on, even in fulfilling a detailed prophecy, such as riding in a humble way on a colt into Jerusalem. And as this account moves along, we're going to see there was at least some knowledge that Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, although it was a superficial knowledge. But we move now from, number one, the prophetic guidance, number two, to the practical obedience, verses four through six. So what happens? Did the disciples pass the test? Well, verse four says, they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing this? What are you doing untying the colt? Luke tells us that it was the owners who asked that question. And verse 6 says, they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. What What they told the owners that Jesus had said is that the Lord has need of this colt. Back as Jesus said in verse 3. So in verse 4, the disciples found the colt tied up just as Jesus said. They obediently untied it. In verse 5, just as Jesus said, the owners asked why they were doing it, why they were untying the colt. And in verse 6, the owners revealed they were clear followers of Jesus because they let the colt go. No argument, no hesitation, no reservation. The Lord needed it. The Lord can use it. And we might want to stop just for a brief moment and make that very simple and practical point because in all the theology and all the geography and all the understanding of everything we need to understand and understanding the details of the last week of our Lord's life do not let it escape your notice that all of Christ's followers should have that type of willing obedience willing obedience of the disciples to ask no questions and to go and do what Jesus says the willing obedience of the owners all that is required here as the disciples telling the owners, the Lord has need of your cult. What in your life does the Lord have need of? What in your life are you unwilling to give to the Lord? Of course, you could cynically respond with, well, the Lord doesn't need anything I have. Or you could selfishly respond, the Lord has enough of me, I I can't give him any more. Or you could ignorantly respond, well, the Lord couldn't, possibly use anything of mine and yet the bible is very clear that although he is sovereign he uses means to accomplish his ends and this is a wonderful example of this beloved god had chosen this particular donkey before he ever created the world to be the donkey our lord would ride on he would choose these particular owners that would breed these donkeys and raise these donkeys having no idea that this donkey would be used in the service of our Lord what does that teach us well number one it teaches us something about God's providence and our obedience it teaches us that the Lord has already given you what he has need of from you when the Lord wants to use you in service or when the Lord wants to use some of your resources for his service, it's not that he has to give you something in order for you to give it back. He has ordained and bestowed upon you certain gifts and opportunities and circumstances that are right in front of your eyes that you are to willingly use for the Lord, just as these owners of the colt use their colt for the Lord. Secondly, we learn from Scripture that the Lord graciously chooses to involve us in circumstances 
that accomplish his providential purposes without us really even knowing it, just living our day-to-day life and being obedient. God will use the simple obedience of his people to accomplish the extraordinary. Third, we learn here that the Lord did not use forceful or manipulative tactics. The Lord does not recruit or draft draft dodgers. He recruits those that are willing. And so if the Lord is leading you to do something, it's because he's already prepared your heart to do that. You don't have to wait for some sign in the sky. You have your Bible. What does his word say? What does his law say? What opportunities has God given you? What resources has he given you? How can you serve him more effectively? What does the Lord require of you? Fourth, the Lord sovereignly places us in situations that oftentimes require our immediate obedience. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. My wife will tell my children, true obedience is immediate, complete, and without complaint. And that's true in our relationship with God. The test of obedience is not in how we plan to be obedient. The test of obedience is in the moment. In the moment of temptation, will we do what is right? In the moment of decision, will we do what we know that we ought to do? The thing that God has placed before us in the immediate. These owners didn't argue. They didn't hesitate. They simply asked the question, what are you doing? And when they heard the Lord has need of it, they let the donkey go. I love this because the Lord often chooses menial run-of-the-mill people. He often chooses simple routines to accomplish life-altering, world-changing things. Don't despise the menial. Don't despise the simplicity of obedience day-to-day in your life because you will never know what the Lord has prepared and what the Lord wants you to use for His glory. Practical obedience is real, isn't it? Practical obedience is hands-on obedience. Obedience of the feet, not just of the mouth. The Lord, our master, doesn't want to hear, I will do such and such. The Lord wants to hear, I do such and such. The Lord wants to see us serve with our hands because serving him involves serving him in the little things because the little things become the big things in God's providence and in God's time. And I know this is a simple point and it might even be interpreted as being too elementary to to mention But beloved, we often forget that God uses the simple and the menial to accomplish his purposes. We hear all the time young people speaking about wanting to be world changers. You can be a world changer by being obedient to the Lord, being obedient to his word, living a godly life, being faithful to your spouse, being a good parent, being a good employee, being a good employer, being a good citizen of the community living life peacefully, serving others. R.C. Sproul has written many wonderful theological works, but some of you might not be aware of the fact that he has also written many children's books. And when I was preparing this message, I immediately thought of a book that he wrote for children, the title of it, The Donkey Who Carried a King. And he writes the fictitious story, and it is fictitious, please don't think this is in scripture, but he writes the story of the donkey that Jesus rode on, and the name of the donkey is Davy. And Davy is the central character of the story. Davy, this young donkey, always bored, always unhappy, always discontent. He never had anything to do until the day that he was called upon to carry his master. And Davy the donkey learned an important lesson. He learned that the Lord always has opportunities for his people to serve. The interests of 
Christ's kingdom. But we're looking at several noteworthy observations. And we've seen in verses 1 through 3 the prophetic guidance. We've seen that Jesus is purposely fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 to the last detail. He's prophetically guiding the disciples. So we've seen the prophetic guidance. We've seen the practical obedience in verses 4 through 6 of the owners of the cult and the disciples. That takes us, number 3, to the praise-filled entrance, verses 7 through 10. And there are several characteristics that mark Jesus' praise-filled entrance. Notice, first of all, that it involved a ride. Verse 7, and they brought the cult to Jesus. There's their obedience again. And they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. As I said, since the colt Jesus rode hadn't been broken in, it had no saddle, and so they're making a, a makeshift saddle by many of them, perhaps with the disciples leading the way, throwing their cloaks on top of this donkey. This would have been their outer robes that would have served as a sort of makeshift messianic saddle for Jesus to ride in some level of comfort into Jerusalem still pointed to his humility, but at least they're trying to create a proper saddle. Remember, Jesus planned it this way. Jesus wanted to ride into Jerusalem in a humble way because of what he was going to do on the cross. And so this ride into Jerusalem on the borrowed cloaks of his followers on a colt donkey is exactly the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. But this praise-filled entrance not only involved a ride, it also involved a road. Notice verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Verse 8 speaks about many. That would be many in the crowds, perhaps with the apostles leading the way. Some of them who hadn't given up their cloaks began to spread their own cloaks on the road. Now this isn't all that odd of a scene because it actually has historical precedent all the way back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 9 when Jehu was anointed king over Israel in place of Ahab. The Bible speaks about trumpets blowing and Ahab, um, excuse me, Jehu coming down the steps to be anointed and the people of God threw their cloaks on the steps for him to walk on. That's what they're doing for Jesus. They're following this Old Testament pattern of paving a way for the king to come. This is not quite red carpet treatment, but they're throwing down what they had for Jesus. And within the consciousness of every Jewish person would have been the idea that this is what you do when you anoint a king. You lay down your cloaks for him to trample upon. They're trying to give Jesus royal treatment royal treatment that's befitting of a king for the immediacy of the moment. I mean, there wasn't much of a warning by Jesus, was there? That was purposeful because he wanted it to be humble. But you've got to give him some credit. They're doing their best to recognize that he is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. They're giving him their best with what they have at the moment. And oftentimes that's all God can ask us to do. And that is what he asks us to do. And we see that example being followed here. But verse 8 also tells us that on this ride, on this road into town, it tells us that others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. John chapter 12 tells us this would have been uh, palm branches from palm trees, which was a symbol of joy. It was also a symbol of victory. And this sort of waving of palm branches, it's sort of like waving a flag. 
It's a sort of a patriotic, nationalistic gesture. And for an Israelite to do that meant that they had hope that there would be some sort of nationalistic victory, some sort of nationalistic revival of sorts. At least that is what they were hoping. In fact, in the intertestamental period, the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees says that when Jerusalem was recaptured from the Syrians, that the people entered it praising God and waving palm branches. That was their day of deliverance. And so Jesus has the road paved before him, the sort of red carpet rolled out, this humble donkey traversing these cloaks, by placing the cloaks for Jesus to walk on, it really symbolized the fact that they were placing themselves under the king, that they were willing to serve him, give him what they had. By waving palm branches, they symbolized their hope for victory, a sort of nationalistic hope. In fact, Luke gives us a little bit of insight into what the excitement of the crowd was all about. Listen to this. It says, as Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All the mighty works, what were those? Well, like the healing of blind Bartimaeus, the amazing conversion of Zacchaeus, The raising of Lazarus from the dead, just to mention a few, those were the most immediate works or miracles that Jesus did, but this would also include the feeding of both of the crowds, 5,000 plus to 4,000 plus, when put together some 40 to 70,000 people that Jesus miraculously fed. All the lepers he cleansed, all the blind people he healed, all the deaf people that he restored hearing to, all of the lame, all of the crippled, All of these wonderful works. They were consumed with the superficial, weren't they? They were consumed with a sort of modern day faith healer slash politician warrior who would ride down in Jerusalem and overthrow Rome. That's really what they wanted. A physical Messiah that provided physically and materially, but they were clueless about their need for the spiritual. And yet, in their allegiance, although it was superficial, they are willingly using their cloaks for Jesus to walk upon. A good example for us. A good example set before us that we are to use whatever God gives us, whatever means, whatever resources. We'll give the crowd credit for that. But this praise-filled entrance into Jerusalem not only includes a ride and a road, but it also includes a recognition. And this is the most important part. What were they recognizing him to be? Verses 9 and 10. Notice your Bibles. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is a journey, as I said, that would have began at the summit of the Mount of Olives. It would have gone down 300 feet to Jerusalem. And as they would have come to Jerusalem, they would have seen below the the vast Kidron Valley. And the first thing they would have seen would have been the southeastern wall of the temple. All of its beautiful gardens, its mighty fortifications, 
As Jesus approached the city on this donkey with this caravan following him, something interesting happened. Jesus was so popular that John tells us in his account that pouring out of the eastern gate came all of the pilgrims who had gotten to Jerusalem the day before. They knew Jesus was coming, and they saw Jesus was coming, and they're waving palm branches, and so you have a convergence of those already in the city pouring out of the eastern gate, going up as Jesus and the caravan of pilgrims comes down. As I said, this could have been upwards to 100,000 Jewish people. You don't think that would have caused some sort of stir? With the Roman soldiers around the walls of the city? But they were excited. And what occurred was a chorus of antiphonal praise. Brother John is one of the only people in here that knows what antiphonal praise is. But it's when... You sing one part and the other side of the congregation sings the next part, a different part, and you're speaking back to one another. This is a praise service on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And as verse 9 says, those who went before and those who followed were shouting. What is this about? Those who went before are those in the front, those who came out of the eastern gate to meet Jesus. And those who followed is the large caravan following Jesus. And they engage in this antiphonal praise of sorts that went something like this. The first group would have shouted, Hosanna, as verse 9 says. And then the second group would have said, verse 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. And then back to the first group, Hosanna in the highest. Chanting this over and over and over again. And what were they saying? Well, Hosanna, the cry of Hosanna, simply meant, Lord, save us. And that was something that was sung really every Passover. It was... uh, sort of like a greeting when you would go to Jerusalem with all the other pilgrims you hadn't seen in a year you would greet them with Hosanna it was a greeting that said the Lord save us and every time that they traveled to Jerusalem it was a reminder that they had to travel to Jerusalem right they had been exiled not everyone had moved back to Jerusalem many Jews lived outside of Judea and Galilee and Perea and other places A reminder that they were under Roman oppression. So when they are crying, Hosanna, Lord, save us, this isn't for spiritual deliverance as much as it is for physical deliverance from Rome. They got his identity right. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They recognized he was the son of David. This is unrestrained, repeated exuberance by the crowds. But it's sort of wonky. It's not focused on the true mission and identity of Jesus, is it? It is filled with prayer and praise, supplication and adoration. The supplication or prayer, Hosanna, Lord, save us. The praise or adoration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, taken directly from the Hillel Psalm, Psalm 118. By the way, the Jews would have sung Psalm, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 as they traveled to Jerusalem. But this time it's different because they at least recognize this could be the coming Messiah. Psalm 18, a very critical, critical psalm. 
because it speaks explicitly about the Messiah. And what does it say there? It says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That was Jesus. He is the stone that is rejected. In fact, Peter told the council of religious leaders that in Acts, didn't he? Acts 4.11, he said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And Peter later would speak about that in 1 Peter 2.7. He would speak about Jesus being the cornerstone and the people of God being the new temple. But these sorts of spiritual categories are not in the minds of the Jews. They've got the physical in their minds. They think this could possibly be a physical conquering. A physical overtaking of Jerusalem, a physical overtaking of the temple. One commentator says the growing throng was caught in something of a mass prophetic ecstasy as the Lord's long procession moved along the slope of the Mount of Olives. And yet, unfortunately, they didn't understand that they would be the ones that would crucify him, right? That's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You're the ones that crucified him. Because on this Sunday, on Palm Sunday, you're shouting his hosannas, but on Friday, you're crying for him to be crucified. Please understand this, that the first Palm Sunday was not about what it was supposed to be about. It was all about the physical. It was all about the earthly. It was all about material prosperity and blessing for a specific ethnic nation. It failed to understand that this prophecy of the coming king had to do with God delivering his people from sin and Satan. Their cries of Hosanna are cries for deliverance from Roman domination, not sin's domination. Their cries are for victory over the enemies of Israel, not the enemy of sin. They are crying for a blessing from heaven in the form of earthly prosperity and political deliverance, not heavenly salvation. And why was that? It's because their theology was wrong and they had trouble connecting Psalm 118 to Zechariah 9.9 together with Isaiah 53. This is a king to be sure. But this is a king that has first and foremost come to make peace through the gospel. This is a king who has come to suffer. This is a king who bore our grief and carried our sorrows. This is a king that was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. This is a king that was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that brought us peace was upon his head. This is a king riding on a peaceful animal, a donkey, not a warlike animal, a horse, because at his first coming... He came to bring peace between holy God and sinful man. And if they would have read or remembered not only Zechariah 9.9 but also Zechariah 13.1 they would have understood that on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin. They never got that far in Zechariah. So focused on Zechariah 9.9 that Jesus would ride on a colt, they never understood that in Jerusalem, once he got there, upon the cross would be a fountain of blood that would cleanse them from their sin. They did not recognize him as the one, as, as Matthew puts it in Matthew one twenty one, who was sent to save his people from their sins. No, their shouts are for deliverance, physical prosperity. They wanted a national revival, a restoration 
more than a spiritual revival, another Davidic dynasty ushered in by the Messiah. They failed to see the true nature of Jesus' Messiahship. They wanted him for the glory and the power he could give them in that ethnic Israel and in that kingdom, but they didn't understand they were in need of a Savior. Can you imagine all the years of prophecy completely going down the tubes because of a failure to understand the mission of the Messiah? That's exactly what happened. And my dear friends, that still happens today with many church attenders. Many who sit in the pew have no clue who King Jesus is. Many who sit in the pew do not understand that he came to save them from their sins. They're still trying to earn their way to heaven. They're trying to earn their way to glory. You know, Jesus' first coming was a coming of peace. I want you to understand that. And to prove that, All I have to do is quote to you some of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That was his first coming. That's why he came on a donkey. Now the second coming is different. Because that's when his identity as a ruling, crushing king will be known to the world. That's when he'll ride on a war stallion but not the first coming. He came to bring peace through a humble cross. He didn't go into Jerusalem prancing around on a white, beautiful stallion like Alexander the Great. He came as the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9-7. He came as the one crushed for our sins. He came as the one who said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But everyone on this Palm Sunday missed that. They missed the fact that this was a tragedy because they didn't recognize his identity. A triumph, yes, because Jesus would prove victorious, but a tragedy because they didn't recognize the Savior sent to them. He didn't just leave heaven to come to earth. Listen to this. He rode into hell when he was riding into Jerusalem because he was purposely creating a fervor that would become so public that it would lead to his execution. He was setting all of this up. This isn't some glorious king being anointed to go sit on a throne. No, the crown would not come apart from the cross. And aren't you grateful for that this morning? Aren't you grateful that our Lord did not snub his nose at the cross? He did not give in to the crowd. He understood his mission as the holy, sinless Son of God, and he came to die on behalf of his people. One commentator has said, Jesus is unlike any other king who ever lived. How unlike he is to the Alexanders and Napoleons of the world. What a contrast to the triumphal injury of ancient kings on their war horses, riding proudly through the gates, cruel-lipped, swords aloft, trailed by captive kings and princes in chains, slowly purposely Jesus came he came differently riding a donkey in humility what an eccentric way for the son of David to return to the throne of David that through defeat would come victory that through humility would come power that through death would come life and yet that is the essence of the gospel what Jesus did once he got into Jerusalem whether people recognized it or not is that upon the cross, 
and his resurrection, he crushed Satan. He established a kingdom that would never fail, that would outlast all kingdoms, crush all kingdoms. But Jesus came to seize his throne through the unsuspecting back door of the cross in a humble way. And that now leads us to the fourth noteworthy observation. There was some oblivion, obviously, in the midst of the chaotic chanting and shouting of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, ignorance of theology, confusion. But there was clarity in our Lord's consciousness. And we get a glimpse of his crystal clarity in verse 11. We move from the prophetic guidance, the practical obedience, the praise-filled entrance, number four, to the planning observance. Notice verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now turn back with me just for a moment to Matthew chapter 21. The other gospel writers, that's why we have four gospels, because they give different vantages and angles and viewpoints and clarity so that they don't all have to write the same thing. That's how the Spirit of God worked when He inspired the Scriptures. They all wrote accounts that don't conflict, but they didn't write exactly the same thing. God used their gifts and their experience as the Holy Spirit led them. What we read in Matthew chapter 21 is that after Jesus came into Jerusalem, verse 10 says, when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And verse 11 says, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So I imagine back in Mark 11, verse 11, that Mark is compressing things here, isn't he? When he says he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. It's likely that he was greeted more as he walked through the streets. It was probably hard to get through the streets because there were two million plus Jews already there. People were asking who he was, probably wanted to meet him, all sorts of things. But Jesus was on a mission and eventually as he fought through the crowds, he enters the temple in Jerusalem. I think this likely means that he just entered the temple grounds. He entered the outer court of the Gentiles Surrounded by Solomon's porch, surrounded by the royal porch, there would have been all sorts of people in the temple even at that late hour buying and selling and exchanging in order to make and offer sacrifices. But while he was there, he did something strange. Verse 11 says, when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus sees that it's late. He makes some observations, and I believe he's planning. I believe he is planning exactly what he's going to do the rest of the week as he stands at the temple. He's looking at a microcosm of Israel in that temple. Their works-based righteousness, uh, the extortion of the selling of sacrifices, the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Everything that Israel had become was identified in that temple. And Jesus was watching it, and he was watching it with righteous anger. In righteous anger, he observed the tables, and this would have set in motion his actions the next day. We read in verse 15 that he came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and he drove out those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
Jesus didn't fly off the handle the next day, trust me. This is premeditated. Jesus didn't lose his cool. This is righteous anger. Jesus is looking around with righteous anger and planning exactly what he's going to do the next day on Monday. Not only that, but this is interesting. Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around, which seems like a strange thing, because his entry into the temple was a fulfillment of prophecy. The law required that Passover lambs be selected on the 10th day of Nisan or Nisan. That was the first month, according to Exodus chapter 12. And the Bible also said that on the 14th day of that same month, they were to be sacrificed. So they were selected on the 10th, sacrificed on the 14th. The last year of our Lord's life, the Monday that he goes into the temple to cleanse it, and this Sunday that he is observing and looking around and making plans for the cleansing of the temple, that Monday was the 10th. That was the day that every Israelite would have been making their selection of a Passover lamb for their families. That was the day Jesus entered the temple as if to say I am the final Passover lamb remember John the Baptist has said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Jesus never forgot that he understood his identity and of course this would match perfectly in completing the timeline because on the 14th day of the month when all the Passover lambs were slaughtered that would have been Friday the very day he was slaughtered on Calvary fulfilling Bible prophecy that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins as the author of Hebrews says it. It was never meant to end with the temple. It was never meant to end with the ethnic national people of God. It was never meant to end with those animals as sacrifices Jesus must offer himself. You see, everything Jesus did was to fulfill in detail the prophecies of Scripture. Even as he goes in the temple and he looks around, people don't even maybe understand exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling it down to the last T. Every jot and every tittle for you to understand that you can trust your Bible. You can trust the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God never contradicts his word. God never contradicts his promises. The world may change, but God's truth doesn't. Your life may change, but God's promise of forgiveness doesn't. You will dishonor God. You will grieve the Holy Spirit. But all of human history came to this point where Jesus, the Lamb of God, eternally offered Himself as a sacrifice of sins to cleanse you forever. That is the hope of the Gospel. And if you're here this morning and you try to add anything to the Gospel, it will damn you. Salvation is by grace, and we say it's by grace because we mean that. It matters not what sins you have committed. It matters not what your past life was like. Today, if you are trusting and resting in Christ, you have the full assurance of complete forgiveness because of the final Passover lamb that was slaughtered on Good Friday. But Jesus also entered the temple for another reason, and this is very critical. Mark does not include this detail, but Jesus had a prophetic vision on his way down into Jerusalem. And Luke tells us about that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And we'll try to wrap this up. Luke chapter 19. 
It says, when they drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. In other words, you think I'm going to be a political deliverer. I've come to make peace between sinful man and holy God. You've missed that. You have missed that. And Jesus is weeping. He's weeping. He goes on to say in verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side, tear you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. I'm assuming they couldn't hear what he said because they were chanting so loud. What do you think? Jesus in tears has this prophetic vision of lamentation. He heard the cries of the people, but he knew their hearts better, right? He knew their hearts. And he knew that an act of judgment 40 years later, Titus and his Roman legions would devastate the city of Jerusalem. Encircling it, the walls, the city being besieged. This Jerusalem now teeming with life. Two million plus Jews would become a graveyard, inside and outside. Forty years later, Josephus even telling us that people were so desperate they were throwing bodies over the walls into the ravine because of the stench of death inside the city. Titus even named the Mount of Olives, the very mountain Jesus is weeping on, as Lookout Mountain because that's where he positioned his Roman catapults to throw all sorts of fiery debris over the fortifications of Jerusalem. Forty years later, 40 years later, Josephus writes, and I quote, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west side. The rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors for people to say, I don't believe anyone ever inhabited that city. Such was the end, Josephus says, of Jerusalem, that splendid city of worldwide renown. God's judgment. Jesus has this prophetic vision. In fact, it was so devastating that Josephus records the actions of Titus, the general in charge of destroying Jerusalem. It says that Titus, when he was going on his rounds, he beheld in the valleys below, choked with death. He groaned and he raised his hands to heaven and he called God to witness that this was not his own doing. God, this was not me that did this. As if to say, only God himself could wreak such devastation. That was AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now a reversal of what happened in 586 BC during Ezekiel's days occurs here in the triumphal injury. There was another time in which Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. They were taken into exile. And if you read the prophet Ezekiel, you'll see that Ezekiel had a vision. It's an interesting vision because Ezekiel saw the opposite of what's happening in Mark 11. Ezekiel tells us that he saw the glory of God rise from the temple and depart from the eastern side of the city ascending 300 feet to rest on the Mount of Olives. What is happening here in Mark? The glory of the Lord 
the very image of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going down into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. The glory of the Lord is entering the temple. A reversal of 586 B.C. But you remember Jesus said, I'm not going to go to the temple to uh, reform it. I'm not going to go to the temple to renovate it. I am the temple. You destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it again. The temple of his body. And the word of God teaches us Jesus is the temple. Through faith in him we are united to him. Jesus wanted the temple destroyed. Jesus wanted Jerusalem destroyed because the plan of God was that he come to save sinners from all walks of life, not just Jews but also Gentiles. And because his own people crucified him, the sinless son of God, Jesus became flesh, he tabernacled among us, and his glory on that day went from the Mount of Olives down the slopes through the eastern gate into the temple. What did Ezekiel see? Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple and rest on the Mount of Olives. The triumphal entry was a reversal of 586 BC. But Jesus would be crucified and Jesus would part. Where would he leave? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 24. Verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany. Well, you ought to know where Bethany is by now, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem, ascending to the Mount of Olives as Jesus enters the right hand, the throne of his Father. But his glory is not gone. What did Jesus say? He said, if I leave you, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit The glory of that Holy Spirit reminding us of the triumphal entry of our Lord, that He came to be crucified, but that He was raised. He exited from the Mount of Olives, but He's going to have a re-entry on the Mount of Olives when He returns again. And this time, dearly beloved, He's not going to return on a colt. He's going to return on a war horse. He's going to return as the mighty, victorious, conquering King that He is to a people that will shout His hosannas, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and they'll know who he is. They'll recognize him. He's come to save the nations of the world. That's what scripture says. But he does that through the gospel. He does that through the peace of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. In fact, Ezekiel speaks about this. He speaks about the glory of the Lord once again filling the temple. And this is how Ezekiel says it. He says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the 
by the Sherbear Canal. I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What is the new temple? What is the new garden? It is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ as His gospel invades the world. Beloved, His gospel does not invade the world by sword. Unless you're talking about the sword of the Word of God. When the Spirit of God sovereignly, mysteriously regenerates souls, cleansing them from their sins, placing them in union with Christ, placing them under the Lordship of Christ, recognizing Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is still with us through the Holy Spirit. As we proclaim the gospel, He will redeem His elect. As He said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into into heaven. I picture Jesus returning to the Mount of Olives and this time He's galloping down on a beautiful white stallion to conquer His world and to conquer His kingdom for His people. This is the King that we serve, isn't it? This is the King that we worship, but we have the complete picture. We understand that He must first become the King of our hearts. We must bow in subjection to Him, confessing our sins. The Bible says if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With the mouth, confession is made, belief in the heart, and God forgives us, cleanses us, raises us to new life, places us in union with His Son, where we are yielded to His kingship, and now all we do is we await for His coming. We work and wait for the Lord to conquer His world and His kingdom, this time as a warrior, this time in glory and victory. But that only came because of the humility of the cross. And next week we'll see what happens Monday morning of our Lord's final week on earth. Father, we thank You for Your Scriptures And Lord, we know that your word gives to us what we need in the hour and moment we need it. We thank you for this blessed gospel that promises us so rich a salvation, freeing us, forgiving us, cleansing us. Lord, I pray that you would help the most vile of sinner to understand that his vilest of sins can be forgiven when there is repentance when there is a true seeking of Christ His glory, His Lordship a true recognition of the fact that Christ shed His blood at Calvary to pay for our sins Lord it is a story marked by both tragedy and triumph tragedy because of the lowness to which Jesus went but triumph Because through His lowliness, He was exalted. Exalted as our King and our Lord. We bow to Him. We seek to submit ourselves to Him. We seek to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord with pure hearts. Hearts that are focused on His kingdom and His glory. 
Hearts that rightly understand His identity, His mission, the depth of our sin, the purity of His holiness, and our need for Him above all things in this world. May we know that today as we've studied Your Word. May we meditate upon it this afternoon and evening as well. We pray these things in the blessed and holy name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.